Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Emma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care Workshop, Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Genomic Testing and Treatment Trends. And today's program is a partnership between the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care. And uh, this is part two of Living with Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Takeda Oncology, a grant from Genentech, and made possible through an independent grant from Merck and Company, Inc. I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. And now our first speaker. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Joshua Shabari. Dr. Sabari is attending physician, thoracic medical oncology, assistant professor of medicine, and NYU Langone Health, Palmetto Cancer Center. And Dr. Sabari will be addressing non-small cell lung cancer overview in the context of COVID, its variants, and seasonal flu, definition of genomics and biomarker testing, the difference between genomics and genetics, the role of biomarker testing in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about biomarker testing and its benefits for your treatment choices. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sabari. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Thank you for having me, and thank you to the Cancer Care uh, Group as well as the Longevity Foundation uh, for allowing me to be part of this discussion today. I'm uh, really looking forward to an in-depth discussion with my colleagues, and also we love the questions uh, from the group. So as we know, lung cancer is quite common. It's the third most common type of cancer in the United States. And it's important to start right off from the top that anybody who has lungs can develop lung cancer. So it's not a disease that is only smoking related or non-smoking related. We know that really at the end of the day, all that you need is lungs to develop potentially lung cancer. And I'm sure a lot of uh, patients, family members listening on this call, uh, there's a lot of stigma related to the diagnosis of lung cancer. We really want to remove that because really all you need are lungs to develop this type of uh, cancer. And we'll talk a lot today about different biomarkers and how it might guide us. So clinicians might ask if you have a history of smoking in the past, not because they're judgmental or judging in any way, it just might help identify specific uh, biomarkers or mutations that may help guide therapy. So we said that lung cancer is quite common. Most people who present with lung cancer generally have some form of symptom, cough, shortness of breath, weight loss, um, but upwards of 30 to 40% of people never have any symptoms at all and are picked up you know, either through routine surveillance or screening or by accident uh, on a, another image that was obtained. So after we obtain a picture, a scan, either a chest X-ray or a CT scan, oftentimes patients are referred to a uh, you know, further doctor, a pulmonologist or an interventional radiologist in order to obtain a biopsy. 
And this is really where the journey of biomarker testing begins. Um, so, you know, before we talk about the biopsy itself, it's critical when you meet a uh, physician, a team, to obtain uh, testing uh, that helps stage the cancer, okay? So staging of the cancer simply means understanding where the cancer started in the body and where the cancer has gone. And we obtain this by getting a PET-CT uh, and an MRI of the brain, which helps us better understand the uh, spread of the disease. And if cancers start in the lung and stay in the lung, we often refer to these as early stage, stage one, two, or three. If cancer started in the lung and has learned to travel elsewhere in the body, like the liver, for example, um, or you know, the other areas in the lung, we would refer to that as later stage disease or stage four. And it's really important, anyone diagnosed with a lung cancer, to really understand the stage of the cancer because that's really gonna help guide uh, therapy and treatment decisions. So once we understand the stage of the cancer, we always want to biopsy uh, the area of disease uh, that we think will define or help us better understand the stage. So oftentimes, uh, people will be referred to an interventional radiologist. These are doctors who use uh, biopsy procedures through imaging, usually CT guidance, or an interventional pulmonologist. Uh, these are pulmonologists or lung specialists who do bronchoscopies, which are a camera that goes into the airway, and using an ultrasound probe at the end of the camera are able to visualize structures such as lymph nodes or nodules in the lung uh, to biopsy. And, once we, and there's no right or wrong way to biopsy. I think that's an important question we often get. Uh, the, the way that we stage uh, in, in order to understand the, uh, um, the diagnosis, as well as obtaining the most possible tissue for biomarker testing, is probably the best way. And there are regional differences between institutions and uh, different states in the United States. Um, but getting a biopsy uh, is critical. Now, once we obtain the biopsy, we then look at the tissue underneath the microscope. And our pathologists, our colleagues, our doctors who specialize in understanding the histology or what this looks like under the microscope. And there are actually many different types of non-small cell lung cancer. To take one step back, lung cancer, we said, is quite common. A non-small cell is the most common subtype. We will not talk about small cell lung cancer today, so we'll put that over to the side. But within non-small cell, there are many different histologies the most common one we see here in the United States is an adenocarcinoma or a gland cancer, and these tend to occur in the periphery or outskirts of the lung. And the second most common type is a squamous cell cancer, and these cancers tend to happen more centrally in the chest uh, or near the airways. So once we define the histology, that allows us to you know, start to think about the treatment plan uh, for patients, meaning different histologies might have different treatment plans. And this is really where biomarker testing becomes uh, critical. And what is the definition of a biomarker? Really, a biomarker is any test, right? Any test that will help us guide therapy uh, for our patients. So it could be a protein on the surface of the cell, or it could be a mutation that we identify in the tumor itself. So anything, any information that we can garner that helps guide our treatment. And Dr. Lau is gonna talk a lot about you know, specifics of precision medicine, 
But understanding these biomarkers up front are critical. So one of the first biomarkers that we think about uh, is something called PDL1, or Program Death Ligand 1. And simply, uh, this is essentially a stop sign or a, a ability for our own cells in our body to prevent the immune system from attacking our normal tissues. And cancer cells can co-opt, can take this process over and sort of cloak or hide themselves from our own normal immune system. So identifying this on the surface of cancer cells, if we can block it or remove it, remove that cloak or disguise, we can then get the immune system to recognize and attack cancer. And PDL1 has been one of the game changers for patients with lung cancer because of the approval of many PD1 and PDL1 inhibitors. And these are conventionally called immunotherapies. These are medicines that rev up the immune system to better recognize and attack cancer. Now, PDL1 is not the only biomarker out there. There are also genomic biomarkers that are critical in helping identify therapies uh, for patients. So in somebody who has a biopsy done, we usually get the PDL1 testing back very quickly, about 24 to 48 hours. However, the genetic testing, or really the genomic testing, I should say, takes a little bit longer to come back. So what is the difference between genetics and genomics? So genetics we learn about in biology, right? Bio 101 in high school, or sometimes we take these courses in, in college. This is really referring to the study of genes and the way that certain traits or conditions are really passed down from one generation to another generation. And that's sort of how we think about genetics. Genomics, on the other hand, really describes the study of all of a person's genes, or we call this the genome. Now, when we're born, we have a genetic information inherited from mom and dad, uh, and these we refer to as germline. Uh, you know, these are in all the cells in the body. Now, genetic alterations or genomic alterations, I should say, that occur uh, in patients uh, who develop lung cancer, most of the time, these mutations are somatic mutations. What do I mean by that is these are alterations that arise over time and are acquired uh, from the environment, from some exposure. Could be smoking, could be pollution, could be radon. And it's very important to help identify these alterations because we could potentially match people to targeted therapies. So we talked about immunotherapy already and PDL1 being a biomarker. And now we're mentioning targeted therapy could be pills or infusions that help guide therapy for people who have specific genetic alterations, and we'll hear a lot about some of them uh, today. And then lastly, for chemotherapy, right, that's the third type of systemic therapy that we utilize. For chemotherapy, um, really we use histology as a potential biomarker of response uh, to that therapy. In the last couple of minutes, I really want to put this into context of COVID-19. And, you know, I say COVID-19, and here we are in 2023. So I want to reassure people who are listening that, you know, we've come a long way, right? Um, you know, back in 2020, when this was a new diagnosis and we didn't really understand um, how to manage the disease, um, this is a very detrimental uh, um, virus, particularly for patients uh, with lung cancer, and particularly for patients receiving chemotherapy. Chemotherapy can suppress 
the immune system, can lower the immune system, and predispose patients to having poor outcomes with concurrent COVID-19 infection. Thankfully, now in 2023, we understand a lot more about the virus. You know, clearly we have vaccination that has been highly effective strategy in this uh, uh, you know, disease. And just to give you some, you know, quick numbers, 85, and this is from the CDC uh, from last week, about 85% of people uh, in the United States have received at least one dose of a vaccine, about 75% have received the full vaccination course. Um, but when we look at the new, um, you know, boosters, and there are boosters now to the, you know, more common Omicron variants, the BA4, BA5 variant, uh, only about 17% of eligible people have received these updated boosters. So I do recommend uh, getting boosted, talking to your physicians uh, and your team about vaccination. I think this has been one of the strongest uh, uh, sort of uh, um, uh, benefits to our patients throughout this time. Now, in people who develop uh, COVID-19 or acquire COVID-19, we actually have lots of great therapies now, antivirals, uh, that can help mitigate uh, the symptoms and the severity. Um, so it, it is something that is still with us, uh, but we understand it better. Uh, we, we now have a lot more experience. And the mortality rate, thankfully, from COVID-19 is far lower from where we were only two or three years ago. So please talk to your physicians, your, your teams, your clinicians about, you know, what the correct modality of treatment would be. And I don't think that should prevent anybody from getting their systemic treatment uh, required uh, for their uh, diagnosis of lung cancer. So with that, I'll wrap it up and I'll pass it back to you, Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Saparo. That was really just, sorry, that was a wonderful presentation, really stellar, and you really set the context for today's program. And very clearly, and you spoke really very clearly for everyone to understand. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, thanks. And I know we'll look forward to you during the Q&A for the questions, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Jia Luau. And Dr. Luau, Dr. Jia Luau, and Dr. Luau will be addressing is a thoracic oncologist attending thoracic oncology service, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Luau will address specific examples of how biomarker testing may inform treatment decisions, precision medicine and non-small cell lung cancer, current research in genomics and non-small cell lung cancer, Guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes, and talking with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns and biomarker testing. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Luau. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mesner, uh, Cancer Care and Longevity for re-inviting me. And I look forward to both this conversation and our Q&A discussion. Um, first, uh, Dr. Sabari uh, had an excellent summary um, and foundation about uh, both uh, the diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer and also um, our approach to biomarker testing. Um, so I'm hoping to build upon what Dr. Sabari has already 
um, touched on and highlight some um, additional topics. So the first thing um, I wanted to discuss and just reemphasize from what Dr. Sabari had said is now in 2023, we have um, both PDL1 uh, testing, which is looking for a protein on the surface of cancer cells, but also um, nearly 10 driver genes um, that um, occur in non-small cell lung cancer, uh, primarily in the uh, histological subtype uh, that Dr. Safari mentioned known as adenocarcinoma. Um, and a recent uh, survey of um, 14 of our uh, institutions um, suggests that over 50% of individuals uh, with non-small cell lung cancer, um, primarily those with adenocarcinoma, actually have what are known as one of these uh, driver genes. And what that means is um, there might be a targeted treatment. Um, this is usually a pill um, that can be given for uh, non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and so um, to you know, touch and reinforce upon what Dr. Sabari says, um, not only should we um, uh, strive to know where uh, the lung cancer is, what stage, um, but also get some of this biomarker testing um, completed at baseline. Um, so um, he mentioned um, both looking at the genetic or genomic mutations and also surface proteins such as PDL1. Um, there's also two modalities to search for these biomarkers. Um, the one that's um, done traditionally is, is a tumor biopsy, and so that was the biopsy that's generally done when making the diagnosis to determine uh, is this non-small cell uh, and what is the histology. So additional um, uh, tumor sample will be tested for one of these genomic tests. Um, and then this usually takes a, a couple weeks to come back. Um, if your physician is telling you, you know, we should wait for these results, I actually urge you to um, wait for these results since um, it does help us um, define the best possible treatment to start out with initially. Um, the other test that we uh, now have in 2023 is something called um, a liquid biopsy. So um, this is a little bit different um, than a tumor biopsy in that um, it is actually a, from a common blood draw, like when you have a blood draw to test your white blood cell count level or your electrolytes or your kidney function, it is simply another um, two tubes of blood um, where we can actually look for these mutations in the blood. Um, and the mutations that we're looking for um, are also these, these driver uh, mutations. And so what this test uh, entails is it is looking for something called uh, circulating tumor DNA. So what that is, is um, you can think of it almost like, um, you know, when, when you have dry skin and you exfoliate, there's, there's dead skin cells. And so inside our body, all of our cells are turning over. So our normal cells are turning over um, and our cancer cells are turning over and they release their DNA uh, contents into the bloodstream, um, and these can now uh, be detected with these new uh, tests that can detect very small amounts of cancerous uh, dead uh, DNA in the bloodstream, 
and identify those, those mutations. And so this is a test that um, takes about one to two weeks to come back. Um, and if your doctor is recommending this test, um, it's a faster way to uh, find out um, if you have one of these biomarkers. Um, and so to, to address um, the, the purpose of knowing, you know, why you have knowing your biomarkers is because it really um, helps uh, your, your physician team decide on the right step um, for the first uh, treatment for your type of lung cancer. Um, for example, uh, Dr. Sabari mentioned uh, PDL1. Um, and so for uh, some individuals uh, who have a high PDL1, um, so that's your cancer cells hiding from the immune system, specifically the, the cancer-fighting T cells of the immune system. Um, if we give a PDL1 or PD1 inhibitor, um, and so that's that's essentially an immunotherapy drug. Um, and examples of this in lung cancer include um, pembrolizumab, uh, dervalumab, um, or atezolizumab. So these are IV uh, medicines that are given through the vein. Um, this uh, medicine will essentially, um, you know, release this or get rid of this invisibility cloak that the cancer cells are hiding from and go after the cancer. And so that's why it's important to know um, whether someone has um, positive PDL1 expression or not. It can help decide whether this uh, immunotherapy is, is part of treatment. Um, an another reason that um, you might want to get um, a biopsy or a doctor is, is recommending additional genomic biomarker testing um, is something called uh, resistance. So an example of this is um, if someone were to have a, a common driver subtype known as EGFR lung cancer, um, someone with EGFR lung cancer and is taking a, a medicine called um, erlotinib, so that's a pill targeted therapy, um, and if at some point um, the cancer uh, outsmarts this pill, it starts growing, um, and then we do either a, a tumor biopsy or one of these liquid biopsy tests and find a different EGFR mutation, this one being EGFR T790M. Um, there's actually another pill uh, known as osimertinib that is effective against uh, this mutation. And so um, this is another time where either a liquid biopsy and or a tumor biopsy uh, might be recommended. Um, and one thing that I meant to mention before is the tumor biopsy is a little bit better at picking up uh, mutations, but it is um, a test that involves um, an actual procedure, whereas the liquid biopsy is a blood test. And so sometimes your doctor may recommend first getting the liquid biopsy and then proceeding with the tumor biopsy if nothing um, is found on a liquid biopsy. Um, the next thing I just want to mention is other situations where you might want to um, consider additional uh, genomic testing. Um, the biggest is the area of research. So um, there's research currently um, involved both um, in 
developing um, better uh, liquid biopsy tests. Um, and then there's research um, looking at um, what sorts of um, resistance mutations, like this EGFR example, um, exist so that uh, we can pick the right clinical trial for you. Um, so the research around better liquid biopsies um, involve um, can we detect um, even lower levels of ctDNA in the blood, so lower levels of shedding, um, and this would include um, can we pick this up um, in terms of better lung cancer screening or picking up the disease when there's no visible cancer on the scan, um, which is also known as minimal residual disease. Um, another uh, reason why um, we would want to do additional genomic or genetic testing um, is at resistance. So like the example with um, EGFR, where the cancer started growing on the first treatment, there are many uh, clinical trials that are available, but we need to know what is the resistant mutation. Um, and either that is a mutation, um, like Dr. Sabari said, or it's a surface protein um, that we're looking for. And individuals who have the mutation or the surface protein um, that we detect by one of these tests would qualify for uh, this clinical trial to try a new and promising uh, treatment for uh, their type of lung cancer. Um, next, I'm going to switch gears and touch on um, uh, the existence of, of telemedicine and uh, ways to prepare for telemedicine appointments. Um, so what I generally recommend for my patients is um, telemedicine, you know, is a great way to um, speak to your doctor um, and set up an appointment when you don't have to physically come in to get a blood test um, or um, physically come in to, to get a, a scan. Um, and so one thing that I would definitely make sure is um, to make sure you're in a location with a good internet connection um, and even beforehand seeing if a family member could help um, you navigate to the correct link um, for the telemedicine appointment. Um, I think every uh, academic center and um, hospital is a little bit different in terms of the technology that they have for telemedicine, uh, but a common one is uh, Zoom. Um, and so if you uh, haven't been able to, uh, haven't had a chance to use uh, Zoom video visits, um, maybe asking a friend or a family member to show you um, how to set that up uh, on your computer. Um, the other thing that sometimes happens with these uh, visits is it requires you to log into your patient portal or your patient gateway. Um, so I always encourage uh, my patients to try to log in um, and test out um, how to navigate the portal in advance. Um, in terms of a prepared list of questions, I, I love it when my patients um, have a prepared list of questions um, because um, it definitely helps me um, narrow down to what kinds of um, what is their perspective of their cancer and, and you know, what, what are they thinking and what are things that they've been, um, they've needed some guidance about. And so I, I always encourage my patients to, um, you know, 
think about um, how things have been the past few weeks and, and prepare a list of uh, questions for the visit. Um, and then uh, in terms of Open Notes technology, um, so Open Notes, for those of you who are not aware, is that um, patients are now able to access um, both uh, their laboratory results, imaging reports, and, and uh, doctors' uh, summaries and, and notes. Um, and I find that to be great because, um, you know, it allows patients to be aware of when these are, are resulted and, um, and uh, some patients like um, preparing questions related to um, these results. So I think that's great. Um, one thing that I've noticed that some of my patients um, like doing is they feel like um, the patient portal uh, sends them notifications um, every time there's a potential result or an actual result that pops up. Um, and so some of them feel better uh, when they silence the notifications or uh, look at these results after the doctor's visits. Um, and so I would just say, um, you know, look into all those possibilities and see which one um, suits you the best. Um, and then finally, um, this topic about talking to your healthcare team about um, quality of life concerns and biomarker testing. So um, in general, uh, I, I do recommend um, at least going through the initial um, biomarker testing at diagnosis that your doctor recommends. Um, so this would include um, you know, finding out what is the type of lung cancer I have, what is the subtype of lung cancer I have, um, and some of these biomarker results. And the reason I, I generally encourage individuals to uh, go through this initial testing is in 2023, we actually need all of this information to, um, I think, have a good um, uh, goals of care discussion. Um, and so I would say at a baseline, um, it would be helpful to have all of this testing. I realize that um, some individuals um, might say, wow, this tumor biopsy is quite invasive, and so could I um, just get the, the liquid biopsy? And I think that's, that's reasonable um, in, in certain circumstances, but I, I do encourage um, my patients to try to get all of those test results uh, before we sit down and, and have um, you know, a sort of goals of care or where's my lung cancer headed um, conversation. Um, so hopefully that was an overview of um, some of these topics, and um, I'm going to wrap it up now and pass it uh, back to Dr. Massner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Liu. That was really outstanding and also stellar. Just a wonderful presentation, a lot of wonderful information. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Allison cushman Voken, and Dr. cushman Voken is Medical Director, Molecular Diagnostics Laboratory, Nebraska Medicine, Medical Director, Warren G. Sanger, Human Genetics Laboratory, Nebraska Medicine, Fellowship Director, ACGME, Molecular Genetic Pathology Fellowship Program, Professor, Department of Pathology and Microbiology, University of Nebraska Medical Center. And Dr. Krishman Falcon will be discussing the role of the pathologist, 
liquid biopsies, reviewing your biomarker testing with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Cushman Volcom. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a pleasure to be on the call today, and thank you to the two previous speakers for giving that great foundation, and hopefully I can <clears throat> add a little bit from um, a pathology perspective. So um, first off, you know, what is the role of the pathologist, and what do pathologists do? And we have a lot of different roles within the hospital setting and within the outpatient setting as well. Uh, we're very subspecialized now. There's lots of different aspects of laboratory medicine that we need to cover. What I'll talk briefly about today are both anatomic pathology and molecular pathology, because I think those two um, things apply the most to uh, lung cancer. So anatomic pathologists, and in the case of lung cancer, would be thoracic or lung pathologists. They are um, the pathologist when you um, or a patient has a specimen that's removed from the body, either a tumor from the lung, potentially a, a lymph node, or have some sort of um, a lobectomy, a, a biopsy of, of maybe, um, you know, a, a lymph node, a small needle core biopsy. Those will go through the anatomic pathology lab, and what that lab does is it takes that tissue, it does something called formal fixation to the tissue, and then um, we embed it and we go through various steps and it ends up being embedded in a paraffin block, which is somewhat like candle wax. And then those um, blocks of, of those, that tissue that comes out of the patient are cut, um, very thinly cut and placed on a slide and stained in various ways. And then those stained slides, and maybe some of you have seen those slides, um, go to the anatomic pathologist who reviews all of those slides under the microscope and, and I think Dr. Zabari initially talked about staging and so forth. What the anatomic pathologist will do, will look at the cells under the microscope and first determine, you know, whether they are benign or non-malignant or some sort of a cancer cell. And then they will determine what type of cancer it is, if it is cancerous, um, potentially how far that, that tumor spreads, say, within the lung pleura, for instance, which is kind of the outer coating of the lung whether or not the tumor invades other um, lymph nodes or, or, or the bronchus and so forth. Um, and then they might also look at various lymph nodes to determine whether or not cancer cells have spread into that lymph node tissue at a very microscopic level. And so the anatomic pathologist takes all this information into account and then develops an anatomic pathology report where they can um, assist in the staging and what we call grading, which is how kind of bad the tumor looks. Um, and put that all into a report to give to the oncologist or the surgical oncologist who may have removed the tumor surgically so that they understand what the tumor type is, um, what the staging is potentially, um, so they can develop a treatment and management plan. And so that's what the anatomic pathologists do. I am what's called a molecular pathologist, and so I, I do have training in anatomic pathology and something we call clinical pathology. And what my role is, is I oversee the laboratories at our hospital that uh, perform molecular testing, all the bio, most of the biomarker testing we've talked about within the genetic um, kind of realm we do in our lab, and I oversee the lab that develops those tests. So these tests have become very highly complex. Um, we use a technology maybe you have heard called next generation sequencing now in our lab. And um, this is, these are tests that can test, you know, anywhere from five genes to 500 genes to 1,000 genes, just depending on how the test is developed. And so we have to go through a lot of um, regulatory steps. We are um, 
pretty much overseen by the government to make sure that we're following proper regulatory protocol when we develop these tests to make sure that they are working properly in our labs so that we can give accurate results to the clinicians and to the patients. And so um, we run these tests in our lab to help look for various genetic mutations or variants within the tumor cells uh, to help guide and direct therapy. So what we do in our lab is we remove either the DNA and or RNA from the nuclei within the cells of the tumor. And then we do sequencing basically now, next generation sequencing. We call it high throughput because we can look at lots of different genes and for lots of different mutations all at the same time. So when I first started doing this testing, um, we didn't have next-gen sequencing, and we were doing what we called single-gene tests. So I think we've mentioned, you know, EGFR, or maybe you have heard of something called ALK or ROS or some of these other biomarkers um, maybe you've read about. We used to have to do those through lots of different assays, and we had to use up a lot of tissue and use a lot of different slides to do all these different assays. Now we can do them all in one assay. We can do it with very little tumor tissue, um, we can get a lot more information, and we can save that tissue in case it's needed down the road for other purposes. And so we run these next generation sequencing tests in our lab, as do many other labs around the country, to give um, a full biomarker report to the oncologists. And I think it was mentioned earlier, for instance, there are many targets now, especially in lung cancer, and lung cancer is kind of one of the, the best examples of where we can go with this. Um, when you look at what are called the NCCN guidelines, there are, I think, like was mentioned, at least 10 to 15 different biomarkers now that we can assess, and we do this all within one assay, basically, to help direct various targeted therapies that are out there now that are FDA approved. And so in our lab, for instance, we have one smaller panel that we use that can now be rapidly turned around in three to five days um, that looks for all of these FDA-targeted genomic markers. And then we're at the final stages of developing a larger um, 500 gene panel that can look at a larger amount of targets potentially for enrolling in clinical trials as many other laboratories around the country are offering. And I'm sure um, some people on the call have been familiarized with these various tests from these labs. Um, so we feel like over the last 10 years, the progress has just been wonderful with regard to the ability to look for all of these different mutations, variants, um, genetic biomarkers to help patients get better and more targeted treatments um, from their oncologists. And so, like I said, most of the, the testing we do currently is on tumor tissue that has been taken out of the body. Um, but of course, there are now, as has been mentioned, liquid biopsies that are available. And so, again, this is where um, blood is removed and um, the DNA and RNA is extracted from the cells, um, from the blood, um, from it's circulating freely in the blood. And so it does require some special extraction and stabilization protocols because that cell-free nucleic acid that's floating around within the blood um, has what's called a shorter half-life. So you really have to do a lot of work making sure you're stabilizing the blood properly and treating it properly to get accurate results. But there are some benefits um, from liquid biopsies, and some of these were mentioned as opposed to the, the tissue. For one, it's much more easily accessible. Um, you don't have to go in and get an invasive biopsy, for instance. Um, it can sample kind of the whole tumor milieu, meaning if, you if there are multiple sites of tumors throughout the body, um, the idea would be all of those different, you can have what's called tumor heterogeneity, where various 
parts of the tumor, maybe if some is in a lymph node versus, say, the brain versus, say, the, the lung, you may have um, a different mutation profile. They can look a little different. And so the idea is a cell-free DNA or this liquid biopsy from the blood can assess all of that at the same time, theoretically. This also can be dependent on how the patient's been treated. You know, if they've had chemotherapy, that might release more cell-free DNA um, into the blood in, in, in this liquid biopsy that's being sampled. And so there are some benefits to liquid biopsy. They can also be, as I mentioned, some of the problems would be stabilization. Also, you need a very highly sensitive assay. Um, we, have, we haven't developed the assay yet. They can be very difficult to develop. It takes a lot of work um, because you have to, you're basically looking for a needle in a haystack, so to speak. And so you have to have a very highly sensitive assay. And so not all labs are performing this yet, and there are some more specialized labs doing this right now because it can be a very technically challenging assay um, or a test to develop in your laboratory. But as I said, they, they are much easier to get in some respects without getting the tissue. Um, I can say from our perspective at my hospital, I, I think this was mentioned, um, our oncologists prefer the tissue um, because sometimes you can miss things in a liquid biopsy because you need that high sensitivity to find that needle in a haystack. And so like was mentioned previously, if you have a negative um, liquid biopsy or negative cell-free test, you may want to get some tumor tissue to make sure you're not missing something. Um, but there are pros and cons to both tumor and liquid biopsies, and um, they both can be very valuable in um, treating um, with precision medicine and precision oncology. Um, I, I think the last um, item I'm supposed to talk about are um, pathology reports. Um, uh, specifically, um, I'll talk about the biomarker molecular pathology reports that we put out from our laboratory. And so I think around the nation, our labs have become much more aware and careful to make sure that our reports are somewhat concise and present the most important information up front um, so you're not wading through pages and pages of information. And we know that patients are now getting these reports um, right away, and so we have to make sure that they're presented in a way that will be um, somewhat understandable by the patient, allows them to develop those questions that were talked about previously. And so um, when you get these biomarker reports, and, or say a report that we would put out from our lab, I think the most important things really to review are, of course, which genes are tested and which ones have a variant or a mutation that could be targetable. So that should state right up front what those are. We have a system now called the tiering system um, in which we can better um, display whether this, if a, a variant is identified in the DNA or RNA, whether that variant is pathogenic and has a therapy targeted to it. Um, versus whether we don't quite know what it means or a variant of uncertain significance, but there may be a clinical trial that could be related to that variant depending what gene it's in and so forth. So we have different ways of classifying these variants, you know, and, and you know, how well studied, for instance, EGFR mutations in lung cancer have been very well studied. Those would be a tier one variant with a therapy from the F that's been FDA approved. So we have different ways presenting these um, through a tiering system, and I think that's most important to know what the variant is, what the gene is, whether there's a therapy, and then secondarily, making sure people are aware that this mutation actually will be sensitive to a therapy versus resistant to a therapy. And then at the end, we try and put in information about the gene and the mutation so people know that this is actually, you know, a, 
a, pos a probable um, pathogenic or activating mutation in the tumor that's driving that tumor. And then we like to put, in our, in our uh, reports, we like to put in clinical trials. Not everyone does that. Um, there are pros and cons to putting in clinical trials. We try and put in trials that are related to the gene variants or mutations of interest to try and help our oncologists. Um, that being said, we don't have all the information. Just because the trial is listed doesn't mean that um, the patient would be necessarily eligible for that trial. But we try and at least give enough information about the gene and the mutation and what trials are available um, to help that uh, patient and the oncologist better understand whether, you know, if they, they aren't eligible for an FDA-approved therapy, maybe there would be a trial um, down the road with their genomic profile from the, the testing um, that could be helpful in their, in, their in their course of therapy and in their management. So I guess with that, I'll end, and um, I'll be happy to take any questions um, as we answer our, enter the Q&A period. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Krishnan. Welcome. That was really wonderful. A lot of wonderful information for people to have, and um, I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next, uh, our next speaker is it's Dr. Upal Basu Roy, and Dr. Roy is Executive Director of Research Longevity Foundation, and he'll be discussing the free programs of the Longevity Foundation. Um, I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Roy. Dr. Metzen, thank you so much, and again, and thank you to Cancer Fair for this great partnership. I just want to touch a little bit about some of the resources that we have to serve you. And I'm going to piggyback on the amazing information that our three leaders shared. I think lung cancer treatment is a great model for precision medicine where treatment is being matched to the individual type of lung cancer. And as you heard from our speakers, lung cancer treatment needs to be customized to the size of the cancer, to the type of lung cancer, and if the cancer has a biomarker. So the first resource that I want to talk about is the Lung Cancer Helpline in partnership with Cancer Care. This helpline is available Mondays through Thursdays, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern, and Fridays, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern. And you can access the helpline through 844-360-5865. That's 844-360-5865. The second resource that I wanted to talk a little bit about are the lung cancer patient gateways. These are essentially one-stop shop for patients with lung cancer based on the type of lung cancer you have. And this is a great way to learn about different types of lung cancers, connect to experts and patients such as yourself and access educational resources. And the last resource that I want to share with you are all our other patient education resources. For example, our website, which is Lung Cancer 101, videos, and booklets. So again, thank you so much, Dr. Messner, for inviting Longevity to this event. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Roy. That was outstanding. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Christine Califori, um, and she is our Lung Cancer Coordinator at Cancer Care, and she'll be discussing Cancer Care's free programs and services. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Califori.
Thank you, Dr. Messner. Thank you all for taking the time to be with us today on such an important topic. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, online support groups, educational programs, community programs, publications, and potential financial and co-payment assistance for medications. To add just a little bit more information about our services, our resource navigation services involve short-term strengths-based approach to provide additional financial um, resources and support um, for people with cancer or also caregivers. Our national online support groups take place using password-protected messaging boards and are led by oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time and you can register on our website or join an online support group that's specific to you there. You also have Cancer Care's website at your disposal, which is cancercare.org. A wide range of reading material and educational support is organized by cancer type and topic. This includes recorded Connect Education workshops, publications, the Cancer Out Loud Cancer Care podcast, community programs like our Ways to Wellness series, adolescent and young adult programs, a new program on healthcare disparities, and also a new program on clinical trials. You can register for our programs online or through our Hopeline. To become connected to any of Cancer Care services, those interested can call Cancer Care's Hopeline to speak to an oncology social worker. As others have mentioned on this call as well, biomarker testing and treatment is becoming increasingly more important as more treatment options have become available. We often hear from clients that they feel confused or alone in trying to navigate biomarkers and treatment for lung cancer. Please know that you're not alone in trying to navigate whether you're a patient, caregiver, or a professional. If you live in the U.S., please contact Cancer Care so our oncology social workers can help to navigate and support you with any challenges or concerns. Building a community and reaching out for help isn't always easy, but it's important to both maintain and build your support system and coping strategies when dealing with a cancer diagnosis. If you're interested in learning more about Cancer Care's services, I encourage you to call our Hopeline, which you can reach at 800-813-4673, or also visit our website at cancercare.org. We are here to offer you support and look forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much for your time today and the interest in our topic. I'm going to turn this back over to Dr. Messner. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. California. That was really outstanding. And of course, um, wonderful resource, both Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care. And now um, we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Emma to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Emma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And I'm going to start with our first question um, for Dr. Sabari. My oncologist ran a comprehensive biomarker test and it came back positive for MET exon 14 skipping. What does this mean for my prognosis? 
So that's a great question. First off, you know, the fact that you got biomarker testing is fantastic. It tells me that your oncologist is up to date and, and active in this space. Uh, Metexon 14 is a common alteration that we identify in non-small cell lung cancer. It occurs in about 3 to 5% of people. Interestingly, a specific subtype, histology of lung cancer called sarcomatoid, we see this alteration in about 25 to 30% of people with that histology. Now, this is really important information because we have FDA-approved match-targeted therapies. Uh, there are two medicines that are approved now in this setting. One is capmatinib. The other is tapotinib. And, you know, this is a great example of what, you know, Dr. Leo and others mentioned. I would prefer to treat with a targeted therapy in this setting uh, compared to a, a chemotherapy or a chemotherapy and immunotherapy. You know, that being said, um, most people have a very good and, and durable response to treatment, and I would defer to your uh, medical oncologist, but the prognosis with this type of alteration is uh, better because it is a biomarker, because it guides response uh, or predicts response, I should say, uh, to available targeted therapeutics. Excellent. Um, thank you so much. And um, a question for Dr. Um, I'm a non-small cell lung cancer patient with HER2 mutation. How likely is it that I pass this mutation onto my children, and should they get tested now? Thank you so much for this question. And echoing Dr. Sabari, it's great that, um, you know, your oncologist tested and, and found that you have this HER2 mutation. Um, similar to what Dr. Sabari had mentioned previously, um, in general, what we've noticed is uh, people who have either um, these biomarkers or people who don't have these biomarkers and have a diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer, it tends to not be um, hereditary or um, something you could pass on to your kids or your family members who are related to need additional testing. What I would suggest is um, two things. One is going back to your oncologist and seeing if um, locally at their hospital or center they have um, the ability to do uh, more detailed um, hereditary testing um, that's usually offered um, either at the center or um, there is laboratories out there such as um, one called Invitae, I-N-V-I-T-A-E. Um, another option is um, at Dana-Farber, we actually have um, a research study called Young Lung, um, so Y-O-U-N-G, Lung. Uh, and if you look that up on Google, um, this is a research study that you could enroll on, um, and you might even be able to get a blood test uh, close to where you live and participate um, in this research study to see if um, you might have um, a hereditary form of lung cancer. Um, but to summarize, in, in general, um, no recommendations for family members yet, um, but uh, I would suggest you discussing with your medical oncologist whether you should do um, specific hereditary testing or not. Excellent. Um, and for Dr. Sabari, I tested positive for EGFR mutation, but I want to get a second opinion. How common is it? for these genomic tests to have errors? That's a great question. Um, you know, if, if you tested positive for EGFR, uh, these are highly sensitive and specific tests. Uh, so the possibility of this being an error is low. 
That being said, the question is what test? Uh, so there are old methodologies like immunohistochemistry uh, that are less sensitive than molecular genetic testing like the next generation sequencing. But that being said, you know, if, if on a next generation sequencing test via the blood uh, or tissue is positive for EGFR, um, there are multiple different EGFR alterations, the most common ones being exon 19 and 21. Uh, I, would, I would usually, you know, take that as, you know, that's the mutation. Uh, it's always helpful to get a second opinion. And, you know, I think, you know, in your center, uh, asking your oncologist uh, for a recommendation or talking to colleagues or, or friends or family, it can never hurt uh, to obtain a second opinion in the setting. But these tests are, are usually correct uh, when they result. Excellent. Um, and then um, for Dr. Um, Dr. Cushman Vulcan, um, question. Uh, question is. Um, So does the type of biomarker I have determine what kind of treatment I should have? Could you comment on that? Um, yeah, well, yes. And so it, depending on what the biomarker is, um, and when we say a biomarker, you know, that could, it could either be a positive or negative biomarker. So we have a gene, like say, for instance, EGFR, and then if the mutation were present, that would be a, a positive biomarker for, you know, an EGFR inhibitor therapy, for instance. So um, without knowing the specific biomarker, um, if there is one there, and depending on what that is, that could be a, a target for a specific FDA-approved therapy, uh, similar to what was mentioned before, say, with like a MET exon 14, for instance. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Savari, um question would like to know more about significance of mutational burden in genomic testing. Yeah, this is a great question. You know, tumor mutational burden has been one of, you know, sort of uh, controversy, I think, from the beginning. And, and the question of if you have many mutations in the cancer, um, usually these are tumors that have, you know, sort of developed because of some exposure. Uh, either, you know, UV, uh, smoking, uh, carcinogen, or, or other features. And sometimes you can have very, very high tumor mutational burden uh, from something called POE or MSI high, so a mismatch repair deficiency. We see these uh, um, in uh, colorectal cancers, for example, very rarely uh, in lung cancer. And the reason there was so much excitement about tumor mutational burden is that the more mutations there were in the cancer, the more potential for our immune system to recognize um, one of these neoantigens or uh, part of the tumor as being foreign. Uh, and we know that immunotherapy works very well in people with high mutational burdens. In lung cancer, I think the data is more controversial, and, and I'm really you know, curious to hear uh, from a molecular pathologist as well. You know, we see that it is a prognostic biomarker, so people with higher mutational burden tend to do better, but it's not necessarily a predictive biomarker of response. So although there is an FDA approval for certain immunotherapies with a mutational burden greater than 10, it is not something that I put much emphasis on in my clinical practice. Excellent. Thank you. 
And um, I just remind everyone this is um, that this is part two of a three-part series, and the next series will be on caregiving on May 16th. Just so you know that. And I do want to ask Dr. Roy if he could comment a bit more about um, the booklets that you have at the um, at the Longevity Foundation for people to access. That would really help them in today's program. Absolutely, Dr. Messner. So we have two different types of booklets. One is a comprehensive booklet that looks at different topics, such as if you're getting chemotherapy or if you're getting targeted therapy or if you're getting immunotherapy. So we have booklets specific to treatments. Then we have booklets specific to the type of lung cancer that you have. For example, if you have non-small cell lung cancer, we have booklets for that. And if you have small cell, we have booklets for that. And last but not least, we have an overall general overview of treatment. For example, if you're just entering into your diagnostic journey, what's the right type of treatment for you? So we have very basic information for that as well in the form of booklets. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Ms. Califori, there's a question about caregiving. Um, if you could comment on the support groups that we have at Cancer Care on caregiving, just so people have an idea of what they are. Of course. So we do offer a lung cancer-specific online support group for caregivers. So that can be registered for directly through our website at cancercare.org. And then we do also offer in New York and New Jersey caregiver support groups that are live that take place over Zoom. So there's a couple of different options. So um, people can always just give us a call or check out the website. Excellent. And I'm going to ask um, all of our speakers just to give a quick takeaway before we conclude the program today. It's been such a remarkable program, and I know we could go on all afternoon, but we're not going to. We're going to stop. And I'm going to ask, starting with Dr. Sabari, then Dr. Luau, then Dr. Christian Volken, then Dr. Roy, then Dr. Ms. Califori. So um, start with Dr. Sabari. Just a takeaway of what you'd like people to take away from the program today. I think the main takeaway here is that all you really need is lungs to develop lung cancer, and there have been many advances over the last 10, 15 years in therapeutics and diagnostics uh, for lung cancer. So there's a lot of hope and optimism here, and really understanding what your biomarkers are are critical to help you and your clinician team make the best decision for you. Thank you so much. And uh, Dr. Luau? Yeah, um, thank you for your engagement. I think the main takeaway is um, just like Dr. Sabari said, there's a lot of um, hope and new therapies for lung cancer in 2023. And so um, being engaged, making a list of questions, um, asking questions uh, uh, and having a discussion with your medical oncologist um, is great. Thank you. And Dr. Krishman Vulcan? Yes, I think I think it's um, I think it's great that patients have become so educated on um, you know DNA and genes and mutations and um, I feel like I don't I don't need to explain things as much as I used to I used to have to do and and I, I really feel like patients have become just very engaged here at our hospital um, and with our oncologists and I and I've seen similar engagement over these calls so I think it's really helpful to know that patients understand this and are really interested in it and um, I think we'll keep moving forward and find more and more great therapies and targets than lung cancer and other cancers as well. So very positive. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Dr. Roy? I echo everyone's positivity. Lots of progress, lots of hope. 
you have a great team of doctors looking out for you. You have all of us looking out for you. So please do not feel alone. You do not have to navigate your disease by yourself. We are here to support you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Ms. Califori? Just the people being on this program and being able to learn information and then be able to self-advocate is such an important part of dealing with a lung cancer diagnosis in the ever-evolving field. So definitely everyone out there, keep coming to programs, learning, reach out about things that you don't understand, and keep doing the good work that you're doing. Well, thank you. I just want to thank all of our speakers. They've been really, all of you have been phenomenal. Um, and, um, and all of you participants have been great. We've done these programs before, but the questions today have been far more sophisticated than in the past, which echoes what some of our speakers have said about just people being more knowledgeable, um, a bit more about, about um, non-smell soul and cancer. And so we're really delighted um, about that. Um, and I also just want to echo again what Dr. Roy said, that we don't want anyone to leave this program feeling that you're alone. You now have the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care, and there are many other resources. And you will be receiving a Survey Monkey from us. It's an evaluation, but we also will provide in the Survey Monkey any link or any uh, website or any phone numbers that we gave out during the program and even some additional ones. So please, when you get that, look at the resources that we provide as well because that will be very helpful to you. And um, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to thank you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.